Not only another week of Behind the Lens, but another month of Behind the Lens. It's June. Uh, As they say in Oklahoma, June is busting out all over. Uh, And we certainly are busting out this month here on Behind the Lens. Welcome. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go. Behind the Lens, below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, composers, sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, you name it, we talk to them. And we're talking to a a few interesting folks today uh, because this is also, this week kicks off Tribeca Film Festival out of New York and Dances with Films here in Los Angeles. Uh, Dances with Films will, of course, be once again at the TCL Chinese Theater Complex in Hollywood. Uh, And sadly, this week when the festival starts, it will also be competing with President Biden across the street from them doing a Jimmy Kimmel show. So that's going to be fun. For all the traffic in Hollywood this week, people, fair warning, fair warning. If you're going to DWF, um, you know, be on the lookout for road closures because of Biden uh, showing up for Jimmy Kimmel. But we're going to take a look at two films that will be at Dances with Films. Uh, Both of them will be screening next week, but. Next week, we have more filmmakers and another Dances with Films film to take a look at next week. Uh, So we're going to take a look at these two films now. The first one is I didn't know what to expect. In all honesty, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, The film is called Acid Acid Test. It is from first-time feature filmmaker Jenny Waldo. It is semi-autobiographical that stems from her life as a teen in 1992. Uh, and her love for the Riot Girl music movement uh, and the Bikini Kill pioneers. Um, she has an extensive background in the industry. She started her career over at Mandalay uh, as an intern, went into editing, and she also is a co-editor on Acid Test as well as writer-director. And it's basically a coming... Uh, a coming-of-age rebellion fueled by Riot Girl music, a dysfunctional family, and LSD. Yes. Set in 1992, one of the moments of this film stems from our heroine, named Jenny, who drops acid in front of her parents in her bedroom. Now, you would think this would be a very dark film. It is not. It is light. It is visually appealing. The big, big draw with this film is Jenny's adeptness along with her cinematographer, Carrie Ann uh, Ennis. Amazing work visually. The visuals are a true part of the storytelling here. Um, and concert footage is incorporated that they shot. 
in addition to the intimacy of a teen's bedroom and all of the machinations that are on all the walls. It's fun in many respects, but there are also some really serious topics that get discussed within the context of the film. Jenny couldn't be with us live today, so we did a pre-record of her interview the other day. But before we start Jenny's interview, let me tell you who's coming up at the midpoint of the show. Joining us live will be documentarian Jason Loftus. And boy, am I looking forward to talking to Jason about his hybrid meld of animation, live action, and archival footage for a very powerful an enlightening documentary called Eternal Spring. Um, uh, and it stems from the early 2002 TV hijacking in China uh, by the spiritual group Falun Gong. Though our regular listeners will remember, Leon Li, a foremost authority on China, has been on Behind the Lens before with his uh documentary, Letter from uh, Masangia, which stemmed from uh, Falun Gong um, when people were, they were taken, uh, they were arrested, they were imprisoned, sent to forced labor camps by the Chinese, uh, the Chinese kind of outlaw Falun Gong. And Leon's film documentary stemmed from one of these people in a forced labor camp who had written a note and stuck it into holiday decorations that made their way to the United States. And that opened up a whole can of worms and exposed what was happening in China uh, relative to religious oppression with Falun Gong. So now to speak with Jason about his film, Eternal Spring, he actually speaks with members of that TV hijacking crew who pulled state television uh, back in 2002 and put on a video talking about the beauty and the goodness of Falun Gong. So that should be a really interesting discussion uh, later on in the show. But right now, you can take a listen to my exclusive interview with Jenny Waldo talking about acid test. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. So you getting excited for Dances with Films? I am. I'm very excited. Yeah, it feels close, but still far. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Acid Test, I think, is a perfect film for DWF. Oh, thank you. It's right up the indie alley, but also content-wise, visually, I think it's a good fit with DWF. They made a really good choice in selecting the film. Number one, this film is so striking, Jenny. Visually, great visual appeal with this film, which is where your camera work is so important. Your work in developing your visual grammar and your visual tonal bandwidth, working with Carrie Ann Ennis. And I'm curious, your approach to this, number one, it comes off of your short. Right. So you've got to go through that process of rewriting your short, expanding it to a feature, and you took it out to an, an hour 41. So that's a big expansion. You didn't go for a simple little 97 minutes. So I'm curious about your process in bringing this to life as a feature, starting with 
the adaptation from short to feature. Yeah, well, I made the short with the intention of turning it into a feature. I had seen, you know, friends of mine uh, do it uh, and have success on the festival circuit with a short film and turn it into a feature. And I felt like the short and that period of time in my life, just personally, you know, when you're becoming an adult and it feels so big and, and huge and I felt like there were a lot of stories from that period of time that I could cobble together a, a longer narrative and I, I tend to be an overwriter anyway so it's not actually that hard for me to get to 120 pages or something so I started out just trying to take these different kind of sequences and, and figuring out how to create a, a narrative arc out of it, which is slightly strange to do with your own personal history because a lot of these issues are still, to a certain extent, you know, unresolved. My family just kind of barrels through and kind of continues on and, and doesn't necessarily resolve things. And so I really wanted originally, I think the biggest difficulty from the adaptation standpoint was originally I thought the short film would just land inside the feature as the inciting incident. And then the rest of the story would be more about the rebellion. And I struggled with that in the writing process because everything that happened in the short film and, and especially with the kind of latter half with going home after the concert and telling my parents I was still tripping and <laughs> and which was all the truth you know as I experienced it um it was just so intense that no matter what I was doing in the climax of the movie uh, with you know all the things that were kind of going on it, it just never got to the same intensity I just couldn't make anything crazier than tripping with your parents <laughs> around and so I ended up splitting those two tripping sequences um, to basically anchor the inciting incident and the climax and once I did that once I kind of broke with something that was at the core tr a truth you know uh, the short is much more factual it's still an adaptation but uh, you know, once I kind of broke from that and started looking at the feature as these are moments that are truthful, but, you know, it's still an adaptation. It's still, you know, a narrative arc. Not everything happened exactly in the sequencing. And a lot of things started shifting and changing. Um, so I, I kind of allowed myself to break from the kind of these handcuffs of my own personal experience and and felt like I had to kind of deal with the emotional truth and that that allowed me to then collaborate with my actors and adapt it kind of further and and uh, just brought it all together so that was really the biggest challenge once I kind of got over that hump things started coming together this is where your visuals come in number well and your casting because Juliana is amazing. She yeah. is amazing. <laughs> and the camera loves her, and you gravitate towards her. And this is where Carrie Ann's design is so important 
because so much of this film is perfectly framed with Jenny in the middle. It's right. a perfectly framed box around Jenny so that she is the focus of our attention. And we can see this transformation with the cutting of the hair, with Sharpie markers writing all over <laughs> your skin. What I love with what you have done with Acid Test is you show us not only the hallucinogenic aspect from an individual's point of view who's dealing with teen angst and growing up and a very dysfunctional family, but you show us some positives with the imagination, with individual creativity, with thinking outside the box. Right. And that visual aspect of this film is stunning. When Jenny is tripping with her parents around in her bedroom, number one, that entire sequence is beautiful. It is, <laughs> it is gorgeous. It is stunning with your, with your visual effects that come in there. And the idea of writing in air and you see words from her diary taking shape in the air and little pinpoints of light and she pops them, you know, almost like the little light bulb over your head kind of cartoon ideas. Mm -hmm. Really beautifully done. And despite the fact that she's tripping on acid in front of her parents who are freaking out, there is a great beauty to it and a great sense of self-discovery and awareness that she finally is seeing beyond who her father wants her to be and that really shines in that sequence and I think that is so powerful that is the pivotal moment in the film and then breakfast the next morning you know is like <laughs> you know it's going to be a train wreck the way you have taken the words on the page and brought them to life visually, you could have made this a downer, very depressing, as we've seen with so many films, with teens experimenting with acid or drugs, but you didn't do that. And I think that is one of the boldest things you've done. And you turned it around into something very positive for Jenny as an individual. Yeah, well, thank you. I Those are all exactly what I'm hoping people see and, and get out of it because I think from the very beginning, I, I didn't want this to be a PSA against drugs or the opposite, you know, like a, hey, drugs are cool, everybody should do drugs. Right. I didn't want to do either one of those things. I'm a parent of teenagers myself now, and and I just wanted to to face the or, or to present the reality that everybody screws up in some way. It's not necessarily about the acid itself, right? You know, it's about you know. To me, a lot of times people kind of really harp in on the the name of the film as acid test and how it's all about acid. And I'm like, well, it's kind of an homage to the idea of a litmus test you know this yeah. is this is becoming an adult you know this is the trials and tribulations and the stumbles of grasping your own decisions whether they're good or not mm -hmm. you know but they're yours yeah the and title so is the title's very much a double entendre with multiple meanings 
be yeah. it dropping acid, be it the acid test of, ta of doing the essay to submit right. to try and get into Harvard, the acid test of surviving a dysfunctional family, surviving a father who has some violent tendencies, all of that is an acid test. Yeah, yeah. To exactly. your per to your persona, to your personality, to your very being. And I love the title because it is so much more than what people yeah. may jump to at first blush. Right. Yeah, and I, I wanted to, I mean, I find, and I think a lot of people find when, they, when they're coming out of traumatic or, or difficult events that a, a lot of times there's a, a reflex where we make light of it or we'll joke about it. You know, we'll, we'll joke about horrible things that have happened to us. And, and it's this coping mechanism that a lot of people have. And, and part of that is, is something I've, I've always enjoyed in cinema is, you know, this kind of dark, uh, dark humor. And, uh, and it was something that I wanted to make sure was threaded through was that there was, because again, that to me felt real and truthful and, and was truthful and is truthful to my experience that, you know, even in these difficult or strange times, you can find funny things or there are absurd things and, and that is not just kind of this downer and it's not necessarily, I think a lot of times we're expecting this, or I felt in my life, I would be kind of expecting this moment where I would know, okay, now is the time to cut off contact from you know, my father from this, you know, point person in my life that's causing trouble. And things are never that black and white, yep. you know, and I wanted this film to reflect the kind of chaotic elements of it. And, and especially as I've gotten older, the reason why I kind of had that moment in the title sequence where she scratches out, you know, this is based on a true story, um, and that instead it's based on my memories was that, you know, now that I'm parenting my own teens and now that I've, you know, had time to reflect back on this, you do see how life is experienced from a variety of perspectives, even mm -hmm. if you're sharing the same experience and it, people can walk away with a very different understanding of it. And I wanted to, again, just reflect that truth in this experience, um, and so the, all, all of those things were very key themes that I wanted to, you know, present through this story and, um, and, and that it kind of in the end becomes about the nature of storytelling and, and the nature of how we narrativize and tell our own stories to ourselves, you know, um, and, and through the journal writing and, and writing in the air was, uh, you know, a key theme for that. Uh, it was also something that I did, in fact, experience and was something that I was really adamant about making sure was something we could make happen in the visual effects. And so the short film was a great training ground for all of that, to be able to put that, you know, to know what we could do in the future. Now, I'm curious, because as you were writing the script, or once you had it done, and knowing that you would be directing this as well, were you working on your visuals at that point? Were you storyboarding? Were you getting visual ideas and scribbling on the corners of, of the script pages with how you saw a bedroom, how you saw a kitchen, how you envisioned the trippy moments? Because 
there are some extremely standout visuals here. And especially you then that drags us into the production design and you see the attention to detail in Jenny's bedroom or in her best friend in uh, Andrea's bedroom. Very real, very authentic. So I'm curious, were you plotting this out visually as you went or did you wait until the script was done, sit down with Carrie Ann and say, okay, this is what I think we need. Yeah, the with the a couple of things that helped. I mean, doing the short film, like I said, was a great kind of training ground for for what we could do. And Carrie Ann worked as a AC on uh, assistant camera uh, on the short, mm -hmm. but it was shot by uh, Sherrod Patel, who ended up doing the visual effects for the feature as well. So he kind of stayed on, you know, on board, but he shot and edited and did the visual effects of the short film. And so it was this really close collaboration where we kind of mapped out a very um, careful kind of visual plan for the short film. And then for the feature film, based on kind of what I had learned from the short film, I, I always am a very visual writer mm -hmm. and because I knew some of the locations already. I mean, the Jenny's house is my house. We use my house for the shoot. And so I knew where things were and, you know, how we could kind of visualize it. And so I always storyboard my projects just for myself and, and, and come up with a visual language because we've got aspect ratio changes. And I think about, you know, what different focal lengths might work better for certain situations and I, and I am just a big uh, that one of my professors from USC Bruce Block was just completely inspirational to me in terms of really creating this very visual language for telling the story and so it, it's always a key part of my process for myself and then sitting down with Carrie Ann she came on actually quite late uh, she came on board about a month before production, um, things kind of came together rather quickly. And so we had tried to sit down and kind of go through everything together, but we just ran out of time. And so <laughs> we had done some tests with the anamorphic lenses, but then we didn't end up having, uh, we weren't able to find anamorphic lenses for the run of the production and we couldn't figure out a way to to make it work just from a production standpoint so we just came up with these we had a cheat sheet that the film is basically divided and for the first um i i don't i think it was like first 30 scene numbers say you know we were at a very specific focal length based on the test that she had done and you know the color spectrum that we were going for the contrast levels that we wanted and then for the next you know for the for the second act we were in a different you know set and for the climax we were in another one and then for the final you know resolution we had a very very key kind of mapped out detailed ideas and um and you know at three in the morning when we were in the middle of a shot <laughs> we'd be switching up setups it'd be like what are we on? And I'd be like, I don't know. Let me pull out my cheat sheet. We are on a, you know, 80 millimeter. And, you know, this is what's happening. So we, it was incredibly fast the way everything kind of came together. And we did shoot for 21 days 
which is pretty good for an independent film, but it was still very, very fast, you know? And so we just had to come up with uh, kind of a shorthand for how we were going to approach things. And, and, and I, you know, had to trust her and, you know, I, I really wanted to work with her um, for a long time and she had never done a feature. So I felt like we were birthing this child together and, you know, coming, you know, it just became this, uh, you know, we talk about it uh, sometimes during the Q&A after uh, screenings where our first AD, Anna Tran, who's also a producer, and me and, and Carrie Ann, we kind of had this like mind meld going on where we just kind of like look at each other and be like, yeah, this is, this is what's happening. You know, this is, this is what we need or we need to adjust this. And so it was just a really wonderful working relationship that, that really kind of came together on set um, because we didn't have a ton of time mm-hmm. uh, to prep. What did you end up shooting with on this one with camera and lenses? So this was the, the uh, Scarlet, the Red. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we had a variety of different lenses. You know, we had, uh, at the beginning, we wanted to have something kind of slightly wider than normal. Um, and and then as things kind of close in, we went to these longer and longer lenses. So um, so I think we were on a millimeter by the climax. Um, and so you really get that kind of squeezed in, that shallow depth of field. We're really just kind of just completely immersed in the main character's experience. And then it goes back to kind of a normal lens by the end. And, it would have been nice to have the anamorphic lenses, but I think it worked out fine. <laughs> yeah, I think it. I think it looks fine. I. I don't think you missed a, missed anything by not having anamorphics on this one, especially because you've got those heightened VFX scenes, and you have your concert footage. Yeah. And this brings another question into the mix here, Jenny, because you have a lot of quiet moments. You have some trippy moments. You have regular teen and family angst moments, but then you've got high energy, high octane concert going on. The concert footage looks great, by the way. Okay, thank you. I love the blue. I love the deep, true blue color that you've got from the lightings, the tinges of pink that are picking up in the corners. It really feels great. And then the camera... You've got dutching in there. You've got handheld happening. So you're really immersed in the moment and capturing. I love the dutching up at the female performers mm-hmm. because it really is giving that metaphoric voice of empowerment and inspiration. And it works really beautifully. But with these different types of energy flowing in this film, how challenging was the editing to find a balance? The edit was definitely uh, a challenge. I wanted to edit it myself, at least for the first kind of shaping of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, for for something kind of at this professional level, I usually like to work with an editor because, uh, you know, I have, you know, I know my limitations as a technician, basically. But um, by the time we got to the the fine the fine cut uh, COVID hit and we basically had to 
kind of scrap our uh, <laughs> uh, original plans. And so uh, I basically edited it myself and we did a couple of test screenings and before COVID hit and that was helpful to get feedback. And I, but I, I have a documentary background. I started out in documentary. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, with documentaries, you don't have a script, you have your footage and then you carve a narrative out of that. There's a, there's a, a playfulness with the footage where you're willing to throw things out. You're willing to rearrange things out of order. You're willing to just kind of turn things up on its head. And so I basically, feel like I went through every possible permutation of how this film could have been edited together to land on what we ended up having. And so I, I really just looked at it as, you know, here's our footage. How can I craft the best uh, possible edit? I wanted to have some interesting, because of the, the memory aspect, I, I didn't want it to necessarily feel completely linear so there are some moments that kind of break out of that chronological time like around the birthday you know starting mm -hmm. at the midpoint things start to kind of break up and uh and then for some of the dynamic cutting that happens during the tripping sequences um Kay or Carrie Ann my VP, uh, she also edits and, and has uh does some more experimental stuff with her edits of, of different promos she's done for a local theater group here. And uh, so I would kind of hand off the files and she would edit the tripping sequences in in terms of this more kind of dynamic cutting that I didn't quite feel technically, you know, proficient in. Mm -hmm. And then she would hand it back to me and I would kind of rearrange the sections to fit better what I wanted the narrative flow to happen, you know, from an emotional kind of intensity build standpoint. And so we would kind of pass things back and forth that way. And then I would kind of do the final kind of tweak of how to make it work. And uh, so it was, it was challenging trying to figure out uh, how to make things work. And, and honestly, the beginning of the script was actually the first trip sequence uh, and not all the school stuff and as I was editing it together that was kind of one of the biggest discoveries was that people didn't really understand why it was such a big deal that she was tripping because it was the first thing that they were seeing about her yeah. they, they had no context for why this might be different or out of the norm for her and so I had to kind of go back and do a little bit more of a traditional narrative arc with the, uh, a first act of here's her normal world and her family and school and she's a good girl and she's going to harvard and all this stuff and then and then it meant so much more what the concert scenes and being introduced to riot girl and then impulsively dropping acid all of that stuff resonated so much more and so feedback screenings are amazing and i can't ever uh promote them enough to <laughs> other filmmakers and and speaking of the concert scenes that was also something i really wanted to make sure we could capture the energy and the feeling of it because personally i 
really dislike concert scenes in other movies because I, it never feels real typically. You know, it always feels like there's a click track and they're dancing mm -hmm. to music that doesn't exist. Very you know? artificial. And, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to 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 have that immersive camera, and so we split the concert scenes into two days of filming where. We knew we obviously had some dialogue sections that we needed a quiet, you know, concert hall to record in. Uh, but then we uh, we actually threw a live concert that you know people came and uh, and you know paid a, a cover fee so that we could pay the band something. And uh, we shot it three camera documentary style. And so we had Carrie Ann Scarlett. We had another a B cam operator who had a scarlet as well and then we had a roving uh a dslr i think and uh and so we had this you know three camera where carrie ann you know did the traditional a camera with the actors you know our main actors doing the scenes at the concert and and everything and so it was really again it was just important for me to be able to capture that and, and to tap into bands that are currently playing in this realm of music because I, I wasn't just interested in doing a nostalgia piece about 90s riot girl I wanted to do something about if I could tap into what's happening in this space now mm -hmm. as well and so you know, it was just a really interesting kind of crossover between all of those elements. And so it was, it was really exciting. Those were some of my favorite days on set. And that was Jenny Waldo talking about Acid Test. You can all see Acid Test at Dances with Films on June 18th. That is next Saturday at 9.15 p.m at the Chinese Theater, TCL Chinese Theater Complex in Hollywood. Now, we're going to switch gears. And I first, I just want to say, it's well worth, if you're picking and choosing what films to see at DWF, Acid Test is one you definitely want to see. Jenny Waldo is a filmmaker you want to put on your radar. Now, we're going to switch gears. And I am so excited to welcome this man to the show today, Jason Loftus. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Debbie. Pleasure to be here. Ah, uh, I am so excited to speak with you about Eternal Spring. This I'm happy to do it, yeah. <laughs> this is an amazing film, an amazing documentary, such a unique perspective. Uh, from Dakshun's uh, POV and using his illustrations as a jumping-off mm -hmm. point for telling this story and what happened with Falun Gong. And I don't know if you were listening at the top of the show, but Leon Lee has been on, uh, on the show before with me. Uh, oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, letter from uh, Masangia. Uh, right. And yep. that was such an eye-opening documentary. I knew nothing about Falun Gong going into that that film. Mm -hmm. And that whole story, it made me start digging into Falun Gong and the oppression and the banning in China of this mm -hmm. spiritual group, this religion. So with mm -hmm. Eternal Spring, I'm like, oh my God, I have to see this. And 
wow, I was spellbound from beginning to end. Just spellbound. Oh, thank you. You just dove in headfirst with this with one of the most unique perspectives on Falun Gong that we may ever see. Um, very first person. You've got interviews. But Dakshan's entree, using his illustrations, his animation, is just the most brilliant way to go into this and introduce people to this TV hijacking that occurred. Um, mm -hmm. Where, where do you, what led you to this? This is not a mainstream story. We don't hear mm -hmm. we don't hear the news talking about Falun Gong. You know, years ago, yes, they talked about it with the TV hijacking, but it's fallen by the wayside. There For are sure. still issues. There are still the forced labor camps. Um, so, how did you learn about Falun Gong and then the event that gives rise to this documentary, the TV hijacking? Yeah, no, it's great. I mean. Getting into this story, so a little bit of background, uh, I was in my last year of high school, and I had an interest at that time in Eastern philosophy and meditation, so I had scoped out a lot of different Eastern practices, and that's when I first came across Falun Gong, but that was in the context of, you know, just a spiritual practice, looked like a Chinese yoga type thing, and there was no repression in China, and so I encountered Falun Gong, I was familiar with it, I, I knew the exercises, I had a basic idea about what the practice involved. And then there was this ban in China, and the Chinese state media is saying, you know, it's, it's evil, it's dangerous, we need to eradicate this thing. And it just didn't reconcile with what I had seen from the group. So I had a built-in sort of sympathy and interest in the human rights cause uh, in China. But I had gone off, and I, had, uh, I was working in, in media, and I was making productions, and we were doing some animation, preschool series, documentaries and such. And we were making this kung fu video game a few years ago. Um, and it featured a lot of hand-drawn art. We were doing is a sort of visual novel style with a bunch of hand-drawn art panels. And I heard about this artist who was living in New York at the time and originally from China, and his name is Dashong. And he'd drawn Justice League comics and Star Wars comics, and he'd also worked um, with sort of the preeminent kung fu novelist in China, Louis Cha. And so I thought, okay, this is great. The guy has obviously the cultural background, but also exceptionally talented illustrator. Let's bring him up. And fortunately, he was interested. He was working with us in Toronto, where our studio is based, on this kung fu game. And as we're talking, I got to learn why he had to leave his home, why he left China. And first off, he comes from the same hometown as my wife and filmmaking partner, Masha Loftus. But Masha is the daughter of a mid-level government official in China. She had no connection with any you know, dissident groups or religious groups in China. She wasn't familiar. She hadn't, she hadn't, no, didn't know anyone in Falun Gong when she grew up there. So hearing this account of what these people had endured in her own city, combined with my own sort of um, existing interest and, and sympathy in the subject, I think for both of us, it was something that really sparked like, hey, this is a unique story. It's a TV hijacking. You know, it's like it has all the elements of a high story that's mm -hmm. just sort of already written there. And why has no one touched this? This is so unique. And I think the other thing that was even more exciting from a filmmaking perspective was this opportunity to take Dashong's art, which was really evocative. Like when he draws, especially about things that are close to him, about mm -hmm. his hometown and his memories and all of this stuff, it's just, there's just so much to it. it. Immediately, it gives you this sense of place of 
you know, you can, you can feel the authenticity of it and he's very expressive. So we were excited about using this and, and there's a number of other documentaries I think that have used animation very well. Like Flea was really big last year, even, you know, a number of years ago, Waltz with Bashir was a favorite, mm-hmm. uh, Tower was a film I like. They all use sort of different styles and approaches, but, you know, I think animation can be very powerful in documentary. But what set this apart for me was the opportunity to not have animation just be this, you know, this decision by the filmmaker, the sort of invisible hand who says, okay, this is all going to be told through animation. Mm-hmm. In this case, because Dashong is an artist who himself suffered loss and, you know, he, he's been imprisoned, he's experienced torture, he knew right. these people, it's, it's his own city. All of this is very personal to him, and he was willing to go on this journey with us. Uh, as a result, art becomes part of the story. It becomes his his process of depicting the events and, and what the interviewees are telling us and, and his own experiences is his process of coming to an understanding of an event that shaped his life and mm-hmm. also helping him to... We, we see how art can be used to heal, to bring catharsis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this to me was really powerful, this added layer of having the whole artistic process be essentially part of the story arc. Well, this... And I think that's something, that's the reason we end up with sort of a third of the film live action is that, you know, we're coming in and out and we're reminding people, this is real, these are real people. And by the way, here's this artist who's dealing with creating this work that you're seeing on screen. Well, and that's one of the beautiful things uh, that is absolutely mesmerizing as you watch um, as you know, Dashan is drawing. You have the uh, one of the subjects, you know, sitting there talking about his memories while Dashan is drawing, and mm-hmm. so what he's feeling is coming out in that pen right at that second. And the way the camera comes in with some close-ups on that, and the little details that he's adding, talking about big truck and you know, shackles uh, mm-hmm. on his ankles. And Liang, um, mm-hmm. Liang's story is just absolutely heartbreaking. And mm-hmm. But we see all of this through Dashon's pen. And then what you do when you animate this, and this is something I just applaud you on because it's very distinctive in the use of color in the animation Mm -hmm. process because when he's talking about his childhood and the things that he remembered as a little boy, um, all of that is colorful. You've got pink cherry blossoms. It's blue. It's green. It's gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then when we're leading up to in the events of the hija- the TV hijack itself, then everything is gray. Everything is gray that just barely maybe tinges of like a, a dirty brown that gets mixed in with the gray and the black. But there's no color. There's no joy. You don't feel anything except oppression. And mm-hmm. you, pl- the, you work this so perfectly. We feel this film. We feel their experiences. And so much of that is because of what you did with the animation. You know, yeah, it's a great... I appreciate that. I think there's something... There's always something subjective about art. And that's why I feel it's powerful to be able to pull the curtain back. And when you have someone who's illustrating it, it's not that invisible hand. It's the artist. Because now, all of a sudden... 
there's an added layer of objectivity in the sense that we now know we're seeing that this is how this person who's been through all of this interprets it, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of that's something that's been added on for effect. Right. So we were really we really wanted to find a production process that would allow us to reflect Dashong's artwork in animation. But of course, the challenge is that comic book illustrations are flat; they're two D, even if they if they incorporate a lot of detail. And we wanted to bring people into a space and give mm-hmm. them a sense that they were there right and so the ability to move a camera around through a space was really important to us and you can see it in the opening that we have like a five or six minute one or where there's you know not a single cut and the camera's just swooping through this animated space mm-hmm. that we we've dove into through dashong's pen and the way you achieve that because he's obviously he's a 2d artist so he would he would draw concepts he would draw storyboards. We would work on a scene. He would he would storyboard it, and then we would build it in the 3D software. But we would build it just as sort of gray boxes. Okay, building's going to go here. Here's this is basically the setup of the city street. How does this look? And then we would use cameras in the 3D software to take pictures from different perspectives, and we would print those out on a sheet. So essentially, he just has a rectangle. Okay, buildings go here. Skyline characters in this situation. Here's a view, here's a police car. This kind of stuff. And then he would go to work and he would draw all of the details in 2D on top of that. And then we would scan those illustrations and drape them onto the 3D shapes. But because we're capturing it from different angles, we would then be able to cover his 2D illustrations on different perspectives of all of these surfaces. Mm-hmm. So what, what the effect you get is that this is what we were hoping for, is that you can, you can experience a sense of place that you're there. You look at the camera swoops around in different directions. You have that depth and perspective of a 3D environment because that's how it's built. But everywhere you look, you have that hyper detail from Dashong's pen. So mm-hmm. even when you see like the street trolley come by and his childhood memories, if you look at it closely, you can see markers on there because it's been hand colored with a, mm-hmm. with a marker, right? So this was our effort to try and give you this, this feeling, right? And this sense of authenticity and at the same time, give you the depth and the sense of place that comes with 3D. So that's part of it. And I think the other thing, you know, you're touching on there is just the, the mood and the colors. And a lot of that is drawing from, from, from Dashong's pen and from how he interprets these different situations, mm-hmm. you can see how the difference in sort of how he depicts his childhood memories versus his his memories of fleeing persecution, right? You can see it yeah. immediately. But there's also something that touched me, which was this idea of the seasons as a bit of a theme or a motif in the film. So the name of the film is, you know, the name of the city is, is the source of the name for the film, which is Eternal Spring, is a literal translation of the city Changchun. And that was very interesting to me because, you know, obviously there are moments in the film. We tried to play with that a little bit. There's moments in the mm-hmm. film where things are happy, where they're able to encounter their spiritual practice that they enjoy so much and they have the freedom to practice it. And we sort of use different seasons to depict some of those moments as well. And what you see at the end is, you know, there's this motif of the, the plum blossom flower. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting to me because in Chinese, the, the plum blossom flower, Meihua, it's used in Chinese poetry frequently. And it communicates, it symbolizes this idea because the flower actually blossoms when it's still winter. It symbolizes this idea of some kind of hope in the midst of difficulty or, mm-hmm. or tribulation, right? And I thought that that really captured the spirit of these individuals because you know, yes, they pull off a remarkable heist effort here. Um, but, you know, the regime continues, the persecution against Falun Gong continues. Yeah. Even these individuals who are directly involved, in many cases, suffered horribly for what they did. But when you speak with the witnesses and you speak with directly with the participants like Mr. White, 
there's still this sense of hope. There isn't this like, oh, what we did was a mistake and it was all for naught because we suffered so much later. They still believe strongly that what they did had a major impact because potentially hundreds of thousands or more people, after witnessing their their broadcast, can no longer look at the state media propaganda the same way. Mm-hmm. And maybe they'll be less willing to participate in this persecution of Falun Gong if they're, if they're called on to do so. And then you also see how it's inspired more resistance. So it really captures for me this idea of the eternal spring is there's a, yeah, there's, it's still suffering, it's still a difficult time, but there's a sense of hope caught up in all of that. And I think, too, if you think of spring as sort of a Prague spring or an Arab spring, as in a mm-hmm. movement for freedom, and it just persists, yeah. that also really captures what these characters, uh, what these, these film subjects depict to me in the film. Yeah, I mean, what they did is so much bigger than just their one act where, you know, of bravery, because what they did truly was brave to, shut mm-hmm. da- to actually shut down state TV and put a video up there about the beauty of Falun Gong and, you know, the, uh, its ideals of truth and compassion, kindness, tolerance, acceptance. Uh, that, the very act... Is, it is almost heroic, especially in a country like China. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody did it in the United States, but that just because <laughs> <laughs> it's the United States, and we all know people here can do crazy things. Uh, but, you know, China. So, and, but for you to basically take us, you bring us, you and Dashan bring us up close and personal with these people you know how difficult was it to get the witnesses to get them to sit down and speak you know it's interesting because you know once we saw dashong's work and we learned about this event and, and more of what i remember i remember it as you do as a news event that yeah. kind of came and passed but the people involved were completely inaccessible to all of us because you know they were immediately arrested imprisoned some of them did not survive so we didn't have access to any of the details. So, but when you met some, when I met someone who was directly affected by it, that was a starting point. And then we started speaking with other people he knew in New York who were from Changchun, and those people knew other people from Changchun who were also in New York. And in some of those cases, these people knew the individuals in the film very well. And so then it starts to flesh out a bit of a bit of a picture for us. But the biggest thing was learning that there was one direct participant, Mr. White was his alias, um, who had managed to get out of China. To our knowledge, the only surviving participant in the TV hijacking who's been able to leave the country. Wow. And being able to, you know, to meet him and have Dashong meet him as well. And then take Dashong, who, you know, you'll see in the beginning, you see in the beginning of the film, he has some mixed, you know, some, some reservations about the whole event. For one, he definitely sympathizes and sides with the effort of trying to counter the state narrative because mm-hmm. he felt definitely on side with that. But at the same time, the hammer came down so hard that, you know, people like him, he left his, his studio was in Changchun. He had to uproot himself. He left his home behind. You know, he, he had experienced imprisonment and torture as well. And so he knows that, you know, many people suffered in the aftermath of this. So he starts with these kind of mixed feelings about it. But for, to take him and then have him connect and share and draw the story that he's learning from a direct participant in Mr. White, and then through that process come to understand why they felt they had no other choice, why they felt this is the thing they had to do, 
in order to counter the state narrative and you know speak out against the persecution that was ongoing, you can kind of chart his process of of um, evolving in his understanding and appreciation of these individuals. And that to me, and you see it through the artwork as it progresses mm-hmm. too. So that to me was very exciting. In terms of the people who come out, for the most part, the people we were able to speak with, they had been through so much already that they really wanted to tell their story. They felt like they had gone through so much. Some people who wanted, for example, you know, there's characters in the film without spoiling too much, you know, who who do not survive. Yes. Um, and so knowing those people intimately and knowing what they had sacrificed in order to speak out. And then a lot of these people that we were able to meet with would say, they feel like they're carrying that kind of burden in the sense that they survived. They don't know why they survived and someone else didn't, but they feel an onus to, to continue that message and to try and speak out as well. So they were very willing to speak out, which was fortunate for us. Now, you know, ethically as a filmmaker, you're always worried, are you creating more problems for someone? Is there a danger mm-hmm. with this? But there's also something I learned with these people. So when someone comes out of a labor camp, you'll, you'll sometimes hear this story where, you know, they might be tortured, they're being persecuted in a labor camp, and all of a sudden the conditions may improve, and they don't know why, until they come out of the labor camp later, and they find out that, well, someone from outside of China called the labor camp and said, hey, I know what you're doing to so-and-so, or there was a mention in a human rights report, or there was a media mention about them. And and basically the guards there, they, they realize that there's some spotlight or scrutiny on what they're doing, it can help their situation. So the message I was getting from these people who were coming out was the best recourse we have to improve our situation is to shine a light on anything that we've experienced and what's still going on there. They felt that's the best way to help their situation and the situation of those who they're close to in China. How long has this process been for you to bring this story to light? Yeah, this one stretched out over close to six years. And part of it is just, um, you know, it's a unique story. It's Mm -hmm. a unique process. It took us some time to figure out how we were going to tell this story. But also, you know, we're we're independent filmmakers, and it's ambitious to tackle an animation project like this. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, you know, if you watch the end credits on a a Pixar or Disney animated film, you can start to see the animation (laughs) credits, go grab a coffee, come back, you'll still be rolling. (laughs) Go for get, us, go we've get got a refill. Four names under animation, right? And one of those is the animation director. So there's like there's a team of four. And if you look at the lighting and rendering, the entire film was was the lighting and rendering was one guy. And I wow. think that might be a record for a feature film. So you have a small team, fortunately, all extraordinarily capable people who are very passionate about this story. When people started to get into it, you know, these are capable people who could have taken on other work, but they were just like, you know what, this is a special, this is a special opportunity here. It's a really unique story and a really unique way of telling it. And so fortunately, we had some amazing people committed, bringing everything they had to it that helped us to create something that I hope uh, people find very unique. You know, how long were you and, and your editor, David Schmidt, working on the through line and finding your pace for this? Because I'm sure that you could have gone even deeper than than you go here, and this is extremely deep. But you know, find, yeah, you know, finding that the, pace. One of the, sorry, sorry, little leg there. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, but finding that through line and then that pacing, especially after you mm-hmm. start us off with that incredible wonder that takes us mm-hmm. through the streets and rooftops of the city. I mean, right away. You're on tenterhooks watching this, wondering what's what's happening and what's going to come. 
But this mm-hmm. had to have been Herculean effort to find the pace and edit this. Yeah, kudos to to Dave. We had some great consultants along the way to uh, one of them who I'll bring out to the screening we're doing in in LA in a, in a week and a half. Um, it, it's one of those things where this is a unique production process, really, because typically when you do animation, you've got your script locked, you've got your storyboards all sorted out, you do a like a reel or an animatic, and and you kind of know every shot and the pacing of everything. And then in documentary, especially when you're doing the live action stuff, you go out, you shoot 100 hours, you sit in the editing suite, and you figure it out later yeah. if the story comes to you. So they're kind of like polar opposites in a sense. And especially because this film, like some people might assume, okay, well, then you just cut the regular documentary and you animate it on top of it. But you see the film and you realize that's not how we did it because we're showing the process of creating the film that you're watching while you're watching it. It's kind of meta in that sense. So both processes are proceeding at the same time. And that's that was a bit precarious, to be honest, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's you're kind of in an uncharted territory when you're doing both. Like you're, you're animating some scenes. You're like, I know this is going to be in the film. I'm not exactly sure... <laughs> how we're going to get into this scene or out of this scene, but this one's going to be there in some form. So let's start animating it. And in the meantime, we're going through the traditional documentary process of trying to find the story and trying to try and find that through line. So it took a leap. Um, and, you know, I think in that kind of situation, you have to really, you just, you just bear down and you find it eventually, you know, you have a sense that there's potential with the material. You just keep digging until eventually it all starts to materialize, but definitely a, uh, a, uh, like a strenuous process throughout. Uh, Dave and I spent, I would say, probably a year and a half dedicatedly wow. in the edit suite. So I had worked with others and sort of fleshing out a story before we did, you know, our, our interviews and stuff. And then uh, in the meantime, we would identify a few scenes. We'd start animating those. I'd work further on the story. And then we cut together sort of like a, a sizzle, you know, and then we really got into it. And it took us probably a year and a half by the time we were done working together, I think probably that includes a little bit of the post work we started to do, but it was a concerted time where every day, you know, you're working at it. And in the meantime, you have the stresses of your animating scenes and your hope that something you're doing in the edit doesn't result in throwing out animation. And fortunately we're pretty good with that. Like we have a, we probably have a small B story that got cut that, that might end up being a, a short film at some point. But, uh, but for the most part, it all kind of just found a way and worked out. I mean, I could, and I have to tell you, I could watch the footage of Deshaun illustrating all day long. Mm. It is he is so fascinating to watch his process as he's listening uh, to the witnesses telling him their story, and it, it's his concentration. It's almost like he's transported. And it really... He's a, he's a unique individual, oh. artistically. His, his mind is it's very interesting. He communicates... He's not only extremely talented, but you can see that he can create these images extremely quickly, right? It's just immediately there's a feeling, there's a mood, and he can create that sense through his pen. So we really tried to, wherever we were going, have one camera on him mm-hmm. to see both... Because we're charting his path well, as well, right? His art right. from going from one place and understanding this event to another. And so we want to keep on him and see his reactions, but also see how he's interpreting what he's hearing and, and translating that through his pen. Mm-hmm. No, it's, uh, I could just watch him all day. I'm just <laughs> fascinated. Now, uh, a lovely element that you have with Eternal Spring 
is the score is the score is the music and I, I particularly the childhood scenes not only is there beautiful piano but then you bring in some of the traditional ethnic Chinese sounds and mm-hmm. I, I love love what you've done with the subtlety of the scoring here um, you know what were you looking for musically from Tom Hill so Tom, Tom's awesome. We've worked on two films together now. And fortunately with Tom, what we can do is he's just got a library of stuff he's given us. And so we start, because sometimes what happens is you'll throw in some, you'll throw in some music uh, intending to replace it later on. And then you kind of get married to something else. So for us, we've got this relationship with Tom. We've got libraries of his previous work. We'll throw in Tom stuff as our temp, <laughs> and then we'll have Tom like either score something brand new in some cases, or just we don't have something that fits, or he'll take something that he's you know worked on a bit before and change it up, and that's useful because I just feel he's got this he's got a great vibe for for the type for this particular type of story with most of his music, but in general, it's very cinematic, but it doesn't pull so much attention away mm-hmm. that you're like, oh, look at that you know, motif in the music or yes. the music is really drawing attention to itself. It really accentuates the mood rather than just detracts attention from it. I feel Tom's excellent at that and he's very collaborative. So that's been an awesome process. The scene that you talked about specifically is there's that one piece as well where we use um, Chopin's Tristesse. And that was kind of an interesting, this is through the childhood memories. Mm-hmm. My wife and filmmaking partner, Masha, she, um, she's all, I mentioned she's also from the same hometown also a, a major classical music lover. And, you know, we were putting this together and needed a temp track. And she just grabbed this and threw it in um, off the internet at the time. And, and you know, the thing is with Tristesse is that you can almost feel immediately that there's this longing and nostalgia. Yes. And that's because Chopin composed it to express his own, like a longing for his home in Poland after he had been forced to leave, right? So you can sense it. It's almost like it's right in the, in the music. And the performance that we ended up with it's it, we were kind of blown away because we were animating a thing already and we dropped this in and it was like it was as though it had been scored <laughs> and Chopin had scored it for us and this particular performance was just spot on so we ended up had to track down who owned the license and licenses <laughs> for the film because oh. we're just like this is perfect but then as you mentioned we layer in and that's on the sound side so Brett Killerin who's doing and his team who are doing the sound for us they would pull in the sort of, you know, the waist drums that you can hear and the dragon, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the dragon dance layers. And somehow it just works because you've got, you know, sort of Western, um, you know, piano piece there combined with, uh, you know, some sort of more ethnically specific Chinese music. But it, the layers of it just work and it gives you that nostalgia for home as well as a bit of a sense of the environment and what it meant with these festivals and everything happening in its childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just... It... On every level, Jason, I mean, this film is, it is a must-see film. There is no way around it. This is a must-see film. And I know this has been so well-received at so many festivals already. Um, by the way, how how was it received at Krakow? Yeah, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I mean, it's, it's interesting, the um, the Polish people, too, they have lived through a lot, right? Yes. So, I mean... It, you know, they had, you know, they dealt with the Nazis, they dealt with the communists, they, they faced a lot of sort of extreme and, and, you know, encroachments on people's freedom of belief and all that. And so you don't need to say much. Uh, the people, yeah. 
responses, you know, it was awesome because after the film, they come up, you see watery eyes, you see people who are just like immediately get it and, and are really, really touched because having lived through a repressive regime, which I mean, you know, communism was there still for them up through the late eighties. So a lot of people of a certain age, they, they personally experience that and then they can tell what a sacrifice it is when someone is bold enough to try this, right. To counter the state narrative, they, they can feel like, wow, Mm -hmm. what that, what that represents. And you could see it in the audience. So that was awesome. It's sparked a lot of new things. We've made a great connection with the comics museum and the comic society out there, and they want to organize screenings in their community, uh, which is, I think, fantastic, you know? So it was, it was excellent. While we were away, we picked up four more awards in the U S we got both the audience and the jury prize at both mammoth lakes, as well as, um, at the Lighthouse International Film Festival in New mm-hmm. Jersey and Long Beach Island. So I couldn't be there at those in person, but it was pretty awesome to, the response we've been getting has just been, you know, off the charts. You know, Hot Docs is our local festival here. It's one of the largest doc festivals in the world. Uh, certainly the, you know, the largest in North America and we got both audience prizes there. A mix of the audience prizes and jury prizes at a lot of these festivals. And it really, you know, that's, you make this obviously as a filmmaker you 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 treasure the success it's important but you make it this film when you put so much into it it's because you're touched by a story of these people who sacrifice so much mm. they can't be here to tell their story it's like you know their effort to get the to get their message out was snuffed out early and you just feel what a remarkable story what a remarkable you know act of courage and in some way in some sense you feel like now you're that opportunity to carry their story forward, to let people hear what they had to say. And so when you work on something that connects with you so deeply for so long um, and you finally share it with an audience and that's the kind of response you get, like we did our world premiere in Thessaloniki in March and uh, both my wife and I were, were brought out there. And so we brought our, our boys nine and 12 and my 12 year old was a servant as a cameraman during the Q and a for me, <laughs> taking a few shots. <laughs> and uh, you know, you finish the film and the, and uh, lights come up and start the Q&A and you realize people are really thinking deeply about this mm-hmm. and they're so engaged and they have to cut the Q&A off because they need the theater for something else after 40 minutes or whatever it was. And we're out in the lobby and more people approaching and people emotional saying they were emotional throughout the entire film or this might be the best doc I've ever seen in this kind of response. And that's not what you expect, but you just see um, that means a lot because you work on it for so long and then you see that, yeah, other people are connecting with the material in the way that I did, but I had the benefit of spending years with these, you know, with this story right. and, you know, you just hope that they can get that in your, in your feature. And when you see it happen then you feel it's very rewarding. Well, the good thing is by playing in Krakow, you have now, you know, met the threshold as an Oscar qualifying, you know, international documentary. Um, so let let the Oscar campaign begin now, Jason. Come on, uh, and then <laughs> well, I appreciate that. We're gonna we're looking at getting into uh, into theaters in North America. Uh, that's something. I mean, that's part of the traditional qualifying yeah. round, but it's something we want to do as well. And that's partly uh, not just for the award side of it, but also because we created this film before COVID, obviously, and it, it's in cinema 4K in two three nine scope format. Oh, we made it for the big screen. You want to see it? We, we just felt screen. the artistry was so was so awesome. We just wanted to be able to appreciate that on the in the widest format possible. And so we don't want to cut the festival run short or the theatrical run short. We were looking to do uh, a theatrical, and that's something that we're hoping to get going. We've got those offers on the Canadian side, and we're we're looking to queue that up on the U.S. side as well. So um, 
Well, yeah, hopefully. Required or not, we're, we're looking to do that. <laughs> well, and of course now everybody in L.A. on June 15th, they will be able to see Eternal Spring at Dances with Films. That's right. Yeah, at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Um, can't wait to share it with people. Uh, we've got we've got some great friends in L.A., people who've mentored me in terms of uh, some great film producers out there and also a story consultant who helped us a lot on this film, so I can't. I can't wait to share this one with them, um, you know, and it's a great venue there as well, of course, at the Chinese Theater. Yeah, so. uh, you can't do better than that, um, w- especially with this film. I think it's the perfect venue for it, uh, and I can't wait for people to see this film at Dances with Films next week. I just cannot wait for them to see it because I think you're going to get more wonderful reactions from people, Jason. Just so thank well you. done, so well done. Um, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. This has been fabulous. I hope you will come back sometime, be it once we get a theatrical going for Eternal Spring or for an Oscar campaign, maybe. I would love to have hey, you back. I would love that. I would love that. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. <laughs> oh, Jason, thank you. And have fun at Dances with Films. I will. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Jason. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. And that was Jason Loftus, director, writer of Eternal Spring, Dances with Films. I've seen quite a few films that are at Dances with Films, uh, which starts this week and then runs for the next couple weeks. This, if you can only pick one film, this is the one I would say see. Out of all the films I've seen for DWF thus far, this is the one to see. Uh, June 15th, you can go online to Dances with Films. You can get tickets online for Acid Test, for Eternal Spring, and for all the other films that are there. And we'll be talking about more DWF films next week. But that is all the time we have today. But quickly before I go... I just have to say, if anybody's watching on our Facebook feed or if you see my social media posts this morning, uh, big thank you to Apple TV again for some really fun gifties, a picnic basket uh, with accoutrement celebrating Schmigadoon. So thank you to all the folks at Apple TV for this lovely, th- a lovely, lovely gift. Uh, so until next week. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.